Welcome to the Max, a podcast for leaders and entrepreneurs. Hosted by Fifma Krammer. Hi, this time I have a great interview with John Sellers. He's a lecturer of philosophy of Royal Holloway at the University of London. He teaches mainly ancient philosophy and he is a founding member of Modern Stoicism, the organization that runs Stoic Week and Stoic Conference. He's an author of various books, The Art of Living, Hellenistic Philosophy, Lessons in Stoicism, a book about Marcus Aurelius, and his most recent book, The Fourfold Remedy. All books are readable and practical. The last book he wrote is about exploring a completely different way of thinking about pleasures of friendship, our place in the world, and meaning of death. So, enough interesting points to read and listen to. So with no further ado, let's start the interview. Welcome, John. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. John, I just looked at the Royal Holloway, the University of London, and what a beautiful building. And uh, it's a very appropriate ambience uh, for studying ancient philosophy. It is a stunning building, um, built for the education of women. This was one of the colleges within the University of London, specifically for the education of women, when they were largely excluded from higher education. So it has a very proud history of widening participation. Great, great to know. So did you do your study at the University of London as well? No, I didn't. Um, I um, was first an undergraduate in the University of Wales, Hmm. way out in the countryside, um, (laughs) an equally pretty building um, um, that was originally built for the education of um, clergymen. Um, And then I I moved to the University of Warwick. um, And I joined the University of London after I'd finished my PhD as a a postdoctoral researcher um, at King's College which is another part of the University of London. Mm. And that was back in 2003, so quite a while ago now. <laughs> it's quite a long, long time ago. So tell me about yourself, John. Oh, gosh. Um, what do you want to know? Well, whatever you like. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah, I went to university to study philosophy in... 1991, so 30 years ago, <laughs> I was a student of philosophy for, for 10 years, completing my PhD in 2001. Mm-hmm. And for the last 20 years since, I've been very fortunate that I've managed to stay in academia, um, either researching or, or teaching philosophy. So, I mean, that, this has been my, been my life for the last 30 yeah. years. That's, that's, that's clear. So I know you're also a founding member of Modern Stoicism and an organization that runs Stoic Week and Stoic Conference. And one of the goals of Modern Stoicism, I know, is bringing this, the ancient philosophy of Stoicism to a wider audience. So I was wondering, uh, why would a wider audience be attracted to Stoicism? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm... I mean, lots of people have been. I think there's all sorts of elements within ancient Stoic thought that people find useful and helpful today. Um, All sorts of uh, uh, coping techniques to help people cope with um, uh, difficult emotions or challenging situations. Um, But also, I think there's a wider sense of an ethical framework that can give people... um, um, uh, 
a model that they can use to help guide them through everyday life. I mean, particularly if we think about people in a broadly secular society who are perhaps no longer connected to one of the big organized religions mm. anymore. Yeah, um, consumer capitalism says, buy more and more stuff yeah. and you'll be happy. And, and some people have come to realize that might not be the case. No. And also that it might have some quite, quite significant, um, you know, negative ecological repercussions. Yeah. Um, stoicism offers a, a different set of values for what a good life might look like. Mm. So that's maybe one of the que- uh, answers. So uh, why um, Stoicism has such an impact nowadays on society? Because you say, well, we don't have, well, some have, but we, we miss our, maybe our structure or life guidance a little bit. And, religions played that role for a while uh, and they gave us a set of beliefs of practical advice or guidance and um, also rituals just if you look at the rituals of some religions and we look at stoicism what kind of rituals does stoicists um, have to uh, have to offer yeah that's a good question um, i mean strictly speaking stoicism doesn't really offer any rituals but one of the core ideas we see in the stoic advice that we get from the ancient texts is the importance of repetition Mm. so if you want to digest new ideas and and um and let them reform your habits Mm -hmm. so that they they change the way that you actually live day to day and how you react to situations then you're going to need to keep repeating those ideas to yourself regularly in order Mm -hmm. to really sink in. Um, And so a lot of people interested in Stoicism um, today have focused on ways in which we might be able to create routines that build in that kind of repetition. Mm -hmm. So there's one particularly famous passage in Seneca where he um, describes a practice of his own where he stops and reflects every evening And he takes stock of his day. He thinks about all the things he's done during the day. Um, You know, when did he get angry when he wasn't justified to do so? When did he slip up? Um, how, how did he, how did he do? Did he do a good job that day? Mm. And, and he, he suggests, um, you know, writing down perhaps in a journal, um, your kind of response to your day, thinking about where you went wrong and how you might do better for the next day as well, as it's a kind of sort of an accounting to oneself Mm. of of your, of your, your behavior and your ethical progress. And so that's something that in in modern stoicism and in stoic week that we run, that's something we've picked up on and and put to work and recommended that people do as a, as a regular routine. Yep. 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 So I did the stoic week once and I really liked it. Yeah, it's it's very worthwhile doing it. So, um, you wrote your PhD on Stoicism. So you started with the whole idea. Well, when you were what age? <laughs> Thirty years ago, or something? <laughs> yeah, twenty twenty five years ago, probably. Yeah. I started the PhD so, so, so your love for Stoicism uh, started at a young age. So, why Stoicism? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the first Stoic text that I probably encountered and read would have been the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. which I probably first read when I was about 20 or so. Um, and yeah, it's difficult to pin down precisely. I think 
One of the things I quite liked about it, I think, was the way in which it it wasn't, although in a sense it's about the individual and it's about how the individual can improve and develop, there's a very strong theme in Marcus Aurelius in particular about not overvaluing oneself. Yeah. There's a theme of humility. Mm. So, I mean, obviously he, he was emperor of the Roman world. He's the most powerful person in the Western world. Mm-hmm. His egotism could have easily run away. And so what we see in the meditations is him constantly reminding himself that he's actually not that important. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he'll, he'll say things like, you know, he's just a tiny moment within the infinity of time, mm-hmm. soon to be forgotten. Um, the great city of Rome is just a tiny dot, a pinprick on, on the map of the world. These things aren't as important as we might, you know, um, often be inclined to think that they are. Mm. And that kind of putting things in perspective, I think, was the really valuable thing that I took away from, from Marcus Aurelius when I first read it. Yeah. So also probably it was the right path for you because you're still studying philosophy. And taking of the right path, it makes me think of the things that the Stoics wrote about is being aligned with your nature, not the external nature, but more your human nature. And they, they, they say we all have our unique um, nature, such as being introvert or creative or sportive. And we need to have self-knowledge to know who we are. And how did you figure this out for yourself? Yeah, it's, I think... I mean, I think this this will apply to everyone at a at a certain age. Mm-hmm. You just need to try things out, don't you? Yeah. And you need to. I think one lesson you can take from from the Stoics in particular, um, when they talk about this topic, is the idea that you gain some kind of psychological distance from yourself. So you're kind of observing observing your own reactions to situations, mm-hmm. and if you're able to do that you can see the way in which you're reacting in different situations. And in some contexts, you might become aware that actually this isn't the right place for you. You don't Mm. feel particularly comfortable. This isn't the path for you as an individual. And in other contexts, you might immediately feel at home and feel that something just fits. Um, And as you said, there are questions about about human nature, which obviously is general and applies to all of us. Mm. And then there are those individual characteristics that we all have that make us all different and um, and when Cicero in particular talks about living according to nature he he highlights the importance of both of those things Mm -hmm. it's not just a bland thing about you know we're all rational animals we should be rational which is which is good advice to a point but doesn't get you very far no making those kinds of sort of everyday life decisions yeah Yes. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah. Sorry. So no, yeah. So I mean, I think when I was having having actually, I mean, I went to university a little late. I mean, I was I was twenty mm-hmm. rather than the usual eighteen. So I'd had a couple of years out doing other things, testing and experimenting, if you like, <laughs> as people do at that age. <laughs> um, and then I think when I got to university, I found. I found a context that just felt that it was the right one for me. And I've just been incredibly fortunate that I've actually never left. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, would you say that, um, being reflective, uh, experience things and just, um, well, um, find out what suits you best is the best thing to do. Is that correct? 
Well, um, yes. I mean, I'm not sure how else... I'm not sure how else anyone would, would find out. No, well, I, the, 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 the reason why I ask, because, well, I have children who are all at a point in their lives that they're going to try to figure out uh, who they are and uh, have to choose which study they are going to pick, but are also being influenced by others. And especially nowadays, I think, others they know, but also by others they don't know, like all those bloggers and influencers. And sometimes I get a feeling it, it distracts them from self-knowledge, or at least slow them down in their process. So what would your advice be to, to children from a stoic uh, perspective? Yeah, that's a very good question. And... So the Stoic Epictetus talks about this quite a lot, the way in which if we spend time with other people, we will end up being influenced by their habits, right? Mm -hmm. And that can work in a good way and in a bad way. If you, if you hang out with the wrong crowd of people, you can pick up bad habits. But equally, if you can find mentors and role models yep. and spend time with the right sorts of people, you can develop good habits. And I think there's a, there's a thought that if we really want to develop the right kind of self-knowledge and really get a sense of who we are, one thing that can be very valuable is actually to spend some time alone mm. away from all of those influences. Yep. And so, as you say, you know, bloggers, social media, all of these other things, we're bombarded with so much information at the moment from all directions. Mm. I mean, it can be disorienting. It can be disorienting for an adult who already has a reasonable sense of who they are. Mm. Um, but for someone younger, who's still trying to work out who they are, yep. it can be overwhelming. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Some, some time out. Yeah, uh, so, so I think the, the advice to uh, leaders, entrepreneurs, because that's the group I, I work with. So I noticed that if we, if we lose track of why we do what we do and not really know what our position or role is in life or in, in work, we get insecure and out of balance and, and, and we have big doubts if we do the right things. And I know the Stoists, right about t taking your role and part in life and uh, do what you have to do and what's your view on this yeah so i mean i guess i guess we might want to draw a distinction about different types of roles mm -hmm. so there are some roles that we have that we that well there are some roles that we simply don't choose right your you might be you know a son a daughter a brother a sister you've not chosen those but you're in those roles and those can generate um senses of uh, you know obligations mm -hmm. and, and duties not necessarily in a bad way um far from it and there are others that we kind of we might choose but once we've chosen them we um we we, we can't easily um change them right if you become a parent mm -hmm. then you know there's no going back from that right once you're a parent you're a parent <laughs> um and then of course there are all sorts of others that are far more contingent so you know duties and responsibilities that might go with um, a particular line of work mm -hmm. and i mean it's not as if that's unchangeable you can always decide that you you might want to to choose a different path but while you're committed to a to a certain job for instance that also generates certain duties and responsibility yep. about what you ought to do and um 
And it's a question of, of acknowledging those and, and doing them properly. Yep. Um, and if someone were to decide that they, they weren't happy with the, the role and the responsibilities, rather than neglect those responsibilities and do the job badly, the time might be to think, well, is this the right role for me? Perhaps yeah, I so, need to change. Yeah, so make, make a decision. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, well, I, you, you wrote more than one book. And um, so in, in one of your books, uh, Lessons in Stoicism, um, well, the, the, the text you write about it, wrote about it is what ancient philosophers teach us about how to live. And you touch on a few, a few lessons in Stoicism and in your book. And which of these lessons have you benefited from most, from of the most? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. So perhaps to go back to what I was saying a little earlier about Marcus Aurelius, mm -hmm. I think I think thinking about the big picture and, and putting yeah. immediate problems or difficulties or concerns within a much wider perspective, I think I've certainly benefited from that. Mm -hmm. um, and another sort of central theme that we find in Epictetus, which I might summarize along the lines of don't worry so much about what anyone else is thinking or even what they're thinking about you mm -hmm. just focus on trying to do what you're trying to do to the best of your abilities yeah, so focus on what you can actually control and what you can do and, and and don't worry about what anyone else makes of it yeah that's nice yeah yeah because if you um, talk about stoicism there's quite a lot of confusion confusion around um, stoicism and emotions because oft, uh, often people associate stoicism with being emotionless and being but actually they wrote a lot about emotions did they and they had a they have a quite an interesting view on it so can you elaborate on this yes so they certainly have concerns with what we might call certain um, negative emotions and in particular they're concerned with emotions when they get out of control mm -hmm. so um it's it's overwhelming debilitating emotions that they're concerned about so when your desires get out of control to the point that you can no longer rein them in mm -hmm. or when your fear or anxiety becomes so strong that that you can no longer reason clearly in a given situation that's what they're really concerned about yeah. it's kind of quite serious mental disturbances that that, that they want us to to be able to tackle yeah um, yeah Yeah, uh, but what I, what I was what I noticed that uh, Seneca says that crying isn't an emotion. So they only say when you when you it's over over the top, then it's an emotion. So yes, so um, so when the Stoics are talking about emotions and these negative emotions in particular, they're talking about something that's the product of a value judgment. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you judge that a situation is genuinely bad or genuinely good, and that then leads to this strong emotional response. Mm -hmm. right? And Seneca in particular draws a distinction between those kind of really strongly held beliefs 
um, and our kind of immediate responses to situations, right? So, you know, a loud bang happens and you jump in fear yep. or something um, very upsetting happens and, and you immediately cry. Yep. Um, and those, he says, he calls those first movements. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of immediate natural responses. Yep. So there's no suggestion that we turn ourselves into an unfeeling block of stone. Mm, no. What we try to avoid are those are, are those judgments that lead to um, uh, much longer term, long, longer term um, uh, feelings. So, for instance, someone um, who might lose a relative, an elderly relative, for instance, and they might go to the funeral and be naturally upset, and they might cry at the funeral. Yeah. And Seneca and the Stoics are going to say that's a perfectly normal, natural mm. human response. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, sorry. The, 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 yeah, the, um, the problematic bit would be the person who six months or a year later still judges that what happened was a terrible tragedy that ought not to have happened. Mm, so I have to get stuck in yeah. grief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the advice they give us is gaining distance from your emotions so that you can observe them. And that's... Probably the strongest advice they give us um, when you talk about emotions. Is that correct? That's right. And it's in particular the value judgments that mm. we make that yep. produce them. So, the, so that, t- that moment where someone judges that something terrible has happened, mm-hmm. that's, that's the bit that we need to kind of keep a check on, they yep. suggest. Yeah, yeah. So maybe people will say, well, that's easily said and done. So it sounds uh, really rational, and but how do you do that? How how can you learn yourself uh, to be able to observe your emotions in that way? I mean, this is where the training and the repetition comes in. Yep. So it's the, those regular reminders to yourself that this is what you need to be doing. Um, And I think it also requires an element of slowing down, Mm. um, not rushing to make judgment, taking time to think through a situation rather than just coming to a snap decision and moving on. Mm. And of course, these days, a lot of us are very busy and rushing around and don't perhaps take out enough time to do that kind of reflecting about what we're thinking about things. Yeah, true, true. So, um, another thing uh, Stoics Stoics, uh, write about is how they look at success in life. Because I know sometimes you hear people say, if you're not successful, it's up to you. And then you didn't work enough. Uh, That's more of a thought of Western capitalism. And, well, and the Stoics say, it's not your fault, fault, but because it's not all in your control. That's right. So in terms of external things, it's most definitely not in your control at all, right? Mm-hmm. You can work as hard as as hard as you like. Um, you may even um, start off from a very fortunate vantage point. Um, of course, lots of people don't. But even then, things can go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Even then, external factors that you couldn't um, have predicted can mess up the best plans. So there are no guarantees whatsoever for external success, the Stoics are going to say. 
But I think there's also, there'd also be another element to their response, which would be perhaps we need to rethink our idea of what success is. Mm-hmm. And perhaps rather than seeing success as achieving those goals consistently, we ought to think of success more as um, trying the best we could, acting with integrity, um, behaving in a way that no matter what the outcome, you walk away from the situation feeling, um, I did myself justice. Yeah. I did mm. the best that I could and I behaved in an ethically appropriate way. Um, I have nothing to feel guilty or bad or disappointed about. Mm. The outcome doesn't matter so much. You just said, well, Marcus talks, talks a lot about stepping out of your head, look at yourself from a distance. Um, as if you were high in the in, in the with the stars, and um, so that's that's an important thing to remember, and it, uh, mainly to uh, look things in, in in perspective. You say, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, gain that distance, put things in a much wider context. Mm. Whatever immediate frustration or, or difficulty you might be facing right now. Yeah. Um, Is it going to look significant in a week's time? Mm. Are you even going to remember it in a year's time? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really helpful. So uh, one of the, the other virtues has to do with how we behave to other people. And, and I think that's an interesting thing because I'm sure a lot of people won't think, think uh, of social uh, things when they think about Stoic philosophy. But they were f- quite social. And yes. Because they realized they were social humans. But can you tell us a little bit about this aspect of one of the virtues? So we talked uh, um, a little earlier about our, our sort of unique individual human nature, mm-hmm. right? Um, those characteristics that are specific to us. But we're also human beings in a, in a, in a more general sense. And we're, we're social animals, right? We, we're born into families. We're born into communities. Uh, none of us can survive on our own. No. We certainly can't survive on our own when we're, when we're infants and small children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But even now, I mean, uh, someone is supplying your house with fresh water. Someone else is growing the food that you eat unless you grow it all yourself. We're all dependent on these networks of other people. Our very survival depends upon the fact that we're, we're, we're social animals that are parts of a community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and if we can see ourselves as parts of those networks and communities, rather than see ourselves as sort of isolated competitors that are all out for number one, mm-hmm. we'll realize that our relationships with other people are actually really an essential part of, of, of of, of who we are as, as social animals and that, that cultivating those relationships is, is absolutely fundamental because if we, if we genuinely alienated everyone and <laughs> that we mm-hmm. came into contact with and we really were on our own, yeah. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to survive. Yeah. I do think uh, nowadays uh, the, the situation we're in altogether, one hand, we realize we're dependent and we have um, something we're all have the same problem almost but at the other hand at the other hand do you think um, people find it difficult to stay in contact with each other um, I mean I think I mean we're very fortunate in that we have so much 
technology that we can easily stay in touch with with mm -hmm. friends and family all over the world. So that's good in some respects. Um, but I agree with you entirely. I think people have become all the more aware of how dependent we are on other people. Um, I mean, you know, with so many more th things uh, brought to my house rather than me going out, being able to visit the shops or whatever. Yep. I mean, my postman has become a, a, a vital part of my, of, of my life, right? He brings, brings so many things. Linking pin. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and our reliance on, on people that work in, um, in hospitals and in the medical sector, we're, we're very much aware of that. Um, and although we've got all of this great, communication technology that we can stay in touch with people lots of people are all the more aware of how much they miss direct physical contact yeah. with friends and family True. which again is just a way of reminding us of actually how important those social relationships are to our well-being yeah that's true yeah so your recent book because you wrote a lot of books your recent book is fourfold remedy it's the title So which of the four are you aiming at? So this is a book about Epicureanism, mm -hmm. which was the other big school of philosophy that was active at the same time when the Stoics were first getting going in Athens. Yep. Um, and one of the later Epicureans try to, tries to summarize Epicurean philosophy mm -hmm. in just these, these brief lines, um, the fourfold remedy. Um, uh, don't don't fear God. Don't worry about death. What's good is easy to get, um, and what's difficult is is easy to uh, endure. Mm. Uh, as a brief kind of summary of, okay. of various bits of Epicurean advice that they give us. Ah, okay, okay. So, so but, yeah. So, which of those am I? Which of those am I? I focused on. Well, <laughs> I guess what's good is easy to get. I'll plump for that one. Right. The the, <laughs> the, the most important things we need for life are actually fairly easy to get we don't need a huge amount in terms of sort of material possessions no. the basics are actually readily available that's true so one of the questions you ask in the book is what do we really need in order to live a happy life and i i, I thought by myself why didn't didn't i have the answer 40 years ago <laughs> <laughs> so what's the answer <laughs> tell me <laughs> so so epicurus um uh says we should um analyze all of the things that we pursue and that we desire and mm -hmm. put them into different categories yep. and if we do this we'll realize that only a handful of things fall into the category of things that we need naturally and that are necessary for our survival you know food water shelter that's all you really need right mm -hmm. um um and Then there are all sorts of other things that spring from our natural desires but aren't really necessary, right? So people don't just want somewhere to shelter from the elements. They want a very nice house in a nice part of town with um, uh, multiple bathrooms and, mm -hmm. and all the other fancy elements of, of modern living. Mm -hmm. And people don't just want food to survive. They don't just want bread and water. They want to be able to go to a nice restaurant and, yeah. and so on. Um, and then there's all the other stuff that we buy these days that isn't really fulfilling a natural need at all. It's just stuff that's nice to have, yep. but we don't need it. It's not necessary. Mm. And Epicurus thinks that by reflecting on this, we'll realize that the really essential things that we need in order to live 
are actually very, very um, um, uh, easy to secure. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we can all, you know, um, the vast majority of us have no problem securing bread and water um, uh, these days. Um, and knowing that you don't actually need that much can reduce your anxiety about the future. Yeah, right? so, because one, one of his uh, goals, the, the most important goal in life, he said, was tranquility. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, know, I know we tend to, to associate uh, Epicurean, Epicurean with the enjoyment of fine food and, and, and decadent self-indulgence. But it's a big difference from the vision of, of pleasant life developed by him. So they were more uh, concerned with uh, mental pleasures and, and avoiding pain, isn't it? That's right. That's right. So, um, so Epicurus is a hedonist. He thinks that pleasure is the most important thing, but he's not talking about those physical pleasures of fine food and mm. so on. He's more concerned with psychological pleasures. Um, that's what's most important. And then he flips it on its head and he says, well, psychological pleasure is great. You know, good conversation with friends can bring us, bring us pleasure. But far more important is avoiding pain. It's avoiding anxiety. Yep. And, and this leads him to this idea that it's actually tranquility or calmness of mind understood as, as freedom from anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing we really need. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at the end of, of, of this book, um, you say, well, his way of thinking um, seamlessly fits with our modern scientific worldview. Can you explain what you mean? Yes, so I think I probably had an eye on the Stoics when I was writing that Mm -hmm. as well. So one one common concern about Stoicism when people encounter it these days is um, a concern about their view of nature. So they see nature as a kind of integrated organic whole. We're all parts of nature. We depend on it for our survival. So far, so good. But they also think that, um, that nature has a kind of a divine rational principle that orders it and organizes it. So they're mm-hmm. pantheists. And that everything is organized according to this divine will. And there's a kind of providential ordering and, and things will work out for the best, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people these days aren't going to buy that bit of stoicism, and that's fine. I mean, in contrast to that, Epicurean physics is much more in tune with what we might think of as the modern scientific worldview. Yeah. So mm. it's just contingent matter in motion. The, the cosmos is infinite, and the world that we live on and the development and evolution of human beings is just a completely random outcome. Of, mm. uh, of of matter in motion. There's no kind of a rationality governing the whole process. No, no. Okay, okay. So I, I, I heard you, you mentioning once that you experience stoicism as a breath of fresh air. So Kate, can you tell me about this? Um, I don't know oh, if you remember, but... <laughs> oh gosh, I'd need some context for that. I'm <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe that maybe that comes to what I was saying earlier about Marcus Aurelius and the idea that 
um, it, it it stresses our relative unimportance. Mm. Um, you know, I think you know we 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 live in a culture. I think where um, there are all sorts of things that might incline us to egotism. Yep. Um, uh, you know that the, the the individual desire to be successful, the the individual desire to compete with other people. Mm-hmm. And if we think these days about social media as well, and and people sort of promoting themselves in various ways. Yep. Um, all of that encourages us to think about us, yep. right? Um, and I think stoicism can be a breath of fresh air in the sense that it says, well, actually, in the scheme of things, you're not that important. <laughs> yeah. You will soon be forgotten. Yeah. It's not all about you at all, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So, um I know there's a stoic community and um, well, sometimes I have the feeling, I get the feeling that it's a sort of a religion. It's not a religion at all, I know. But how can you benefit of stoicism without being dogmatic? Yeah, that's a, that's a, um, uh, um, a really good question to raise. And I think it's a really important issue. So... Um, Stoicism might superficially look like a religion because it's offering a way of life. And we tend to think of the organized religions as offering a way of life, a set of values, perhaps a set of routines and habits. And Stoicism is doing the same thing, um, as did a number of the other ancient Greek uh, schools of philosophy like mm-hmm. Epicureanism and also if we um, might think of, about say something like Buddhism as well which we yep. could categorize as a philosophy as much as a religion mm-hmm. um, the difference is this the difference is that the, the Stoics in particular are offering arguments for all of the claims that they're making no one's suggesting that you unthinkingly accept a whole body of doctrine or that you accept it on faith, or you believe it just because some dead Greek guy said it. Yeah. They'll give us a set of reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's up for us, in each individually, to, to look at the arguments that they make yeah. and yeah. decide whether we think they're plausible or not. Yeah, so decide for yourself if it works for you or not. Absolutely. And, and there's room for some eclecticism here as well, which is perhaps one of the reasons why I decided to write a book on Epicureanism also. Mm. You might find that there are some stoic arguments and, and bits of advice that you think look helpful and that you would want to accept. And you might also want to take some lessons for Epicureanism as well. Yeah, yeah. And obviously it's important that, you know, you don't pick pick elements from, from different schools of thought in an unthinking way that end up contradicting um, uh, um, you need to you need to be thinking it through, but I don't see any reason why we can't learn from from these different traditions. No, and as you say, remain you know open minded, critical thinkers in the yeah, process. True. Um, Stoic conference. I know um, there are a couple of Stoic conference coming up. One of them is especially for women. Yes. <laughs> well, not only for women, maybe, but. Well, I, I'm not sure, but um, I'm going to attend for sure. But uh, next to the Stoic Conference for Women, there's another Stoic Conference coming up. Do you know the date? 
Yes, there are there are a, a number of, of events in uh, in the pipeline. There's one um, uh, this coming weekend. Uh, I'm not sure how that will will fit with your um, uh, uh, when this is going out. But there's there's one this coming weekend on stoicism during a pandemic. Yes, I, I I'm going to attend that one. Yeah. Um, uh, there are two a little later on. Uh, one, as you say, um, uh, uh, on women, and one on Stoics in the military. Mm. Um, and I think there's a huge interest from people with a military background in Stoicism. Mm. So that's a kind of a a separate event that, that yeah. people are doing. Um, on Stoicism and women, I think it's a really interesting topic. Again, a, I think this connects to what we were saying earlier about sort of misrepresentations of Stoicism. <laughs> I think some people assume that it's this very sort of cold, unfeeling, yeah. <laughs> masculine way of thinking. But what's striking over the years, having worked on modern Stoicism, is um, when we've organised public events the audience usually has a very good gender balance. Um, it's never a predominantly male audience. No. Lots and lots of women are very interested in Stoicism. And a, a number of the leading academic scholars who've written about Stoicism happen all to be women. There, there's, there's no shortage of representation. No, no that's true. Nevertheless, there's still that public perception. Mm. So I think the idea behind that event um, is not so much that it be a, a, an event narrowly for women dealing with women's issues. No, no, it's no, no. a way of highlighting the fact that there are lots of strong female voices yeah. interested in Stoicism today. Yeah. And uh, in order to counter that misconception, we're, we're keen to, to, to um, let those voices be heard. So great things going on. And um, well, I nef- definitely would suggest all the listeners to attend to one of those conferences and um and the stoic week when when is the stoic week you know when uh, it's going yes, to start we'll run that again in october okay uh, so it's usually usually around october every year that we run that online mm-hmm. it's free it's open to everyone anyone can sign up yeah can you t- tell tell us uh, in in short what we can expect of the stoic week so i mean Stoic Week is aimed for people that are encountering Stoicism for the first time and who want to test it out to see if it might benefit them. And it was conceived very much as an experiment. So give this a go, test it. You'll fill in some questionnaires beforehand and you'll fill in the same questionnaires afterwards and we'll be able to see if we can assess whether this has actually benefited you or not. And, and having done it for a number of years and seen consistent results, we can now be fairly confident that it will benefit you. Yeah, great. But, but, but you'll be able to get the specific data for yourself to see um, how much your attitudes have shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be more or less the same as we've run in previous years. Yeah. Um, and we, we get plenty of, um, of repeat people who want to come back and, and do it again yeah i can i can imagine because it's uh, it really benefited me so i, I really uh, would advise listeners just to give it a try in october um well john um i want to thank you again for this uh, interview oh my pleasure good luck with your research your studies and, and your books and um thanks again uh, thank you very much thanks for joining me today 
If you like to hear more about me and the Max, go to themax.partners. And don't forget to subscribe, so you won't miss an episode.